Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Today we're continuing on in our Hosea series. You know, it makes a lot more sense when it's like dark and nasty outside and now 65 degrees and we're still jumping into this just uh, dark book. We're continuing uh, our series through Lent. Basically, we just joined Lent and Hosea. And so I hope this is a time where we sort of enter into some kind of weird passages of Scripture uh, and sort of dive into some some confusing and sort of strange things and even sort of deny ourselves through this Lent season as we prepare for Easter, which is coming up very, very, very soon. And so uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. Just uh, parental warning, by the way, on this as well. I promise I'm not going to say whoredom as many times, but it's still going to be in there. Uh, man, the Bible is a very complex book with a lot of very complex stories and complex characters. And it's true to life, too. So uh, we really can't shy away from this sort of stuff, but I believe that God has something really good for us today. So thank you so much for being here and joining us this morning. Uh, the sermon forces me to ask a question. The question is, what is love? Now, you guys know me. I would never be so cliched as to sort of, you know, burst out into like the song, What is Love? I would, in fact, be so cliched that I would do a deep dive into the song, What is Love? by Hathaway. Uh, and so instead, we're actually going to take a look. Uh, I can't remember if we got the lyrics on the screen or not. I don't think we did. Uh, I'll just read the lyrics to you. <clears throat> what is Love? by Hathaway. What is Love? Oh, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more. What is love? Yeah. <laughs> now, the chorus is pretty straightforward at first glance, right? Like, you understand that. You get it. But I think if you're not, like, you know, in a wedding jamming out or in a, you know, 1980s Euro trash club, you know, hitting this up. I think uh, if you really, really sit down and actually think about the lyrics, it's kind of confusing to understand why this makes any sense. Like, what's the scenario? Usually, like, a, a love song, you can kind of picture, like, one lover saying this to another. What's the scenario where this actually happens? And so I actually dreamed it up. I thought about it. Uh, you are hanging out. Your boyfriend takes you out to dinner. You guys have been dating for a minute. It's starting to get pretty serious, right? Like, you really think this is like, okay, he might be the one. This might be happening. So you decide to drop those three little words on him and you say, I love you. He responds, what is love? You open your mouth to answer and he stops you saying, oh, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Now, you're confused to your idea, to your knowledge. You've never really hurt him before. You haven't, you know, this is still pretty early on in this relationship. Not a lot of pain has been caused necessarily. Uh, you've been nothing but good to him. So you start to speak again. But instead, he looks at you this time shouting, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Now, at this point, the entire uh, restaurant is looking at you. You try to speak again, to which he shouts, no more, and stands up. And then he stares and he looks around at everybody else in the, in the restaurant. And he says, what is love? Of course, no one responds, admitting that they don't know either. So he looks at him and he says, yeah, yeah. He walks out of the restaurant. From across the restaurant, you hear a woman's voice faintly, ironically, jovially singing. Whoa, whoa. Anyway, that's it. That's all I have. And scene. There you go. Uh, so uh, that is What is Love by Hathaway, interpreted by Josh. 
Now, uh, we're going to move on into the verses, so go ahead and sit tight. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do all the verses. Um, I think that's enough of that. I think what I'm trying to say, and the only reason why I bring that up is because I'm not really sure, as ironic as that song is, that we actually even really know what love is. Like, why is it that that song, you've got this odd pairing of words, like, around the idea of, like, what is love, and yet it becomes this, like, popular song that now we, like, all know and can kind of sing along to. There's something that's, like, in that, I think, that is sort of rooted in who we are. And I guess what I'm also trying to say is that I want to know what love is. I want to. I want you to show me. Right? I don't know. They're going to be in there. Sorry. Uh, it's kind of hilarious that our most popular love ballads are like, I'm not really sure what love is. And I think it actually speaks to this misunderstanding that we have about love and maybe even a popular misconception of what love actually consists of. Now, uh, aside from goofy song lyrics, I want to just sort of like take a few signs that maybe we, just by virtue of being who we are and living in this time and in this place, may not actually have a good grasp of what love is. We love a lot of things. And it's kind of like a weirdly taxed word, right? Like there's just too much. Somehow the word that I use for what I told Sarah on the moment when we like first fell in love on the steps of her like, you know, freshman dorm, like now what, 15 years ago. That same word was the same word that I used when we got married four years later. But was that feeling really the same? That same word was the same word that I used uh, like when she gave birth to our daughter. That same word was the same word that uh, I used when I actually asked her to marry me. That same word was the same word that I actually used last night on our 11-year anniversary. Is that not crazy right there? 11 years. Ironically, that word is the exact same way that same word that I use to describe the way that I feel about Snickers. I was just thinking about it this past week and I was like, man, I love a Snickers bar. Like it's something more than just I enjoy eating it. I think I might actually love it. I love I use this word, the same word too this week. I loved uh, I've been watching March Madness this year and I loved St. Peter's. This tiny little school from New Jersey that is just whooping up on everybody. It's kind of amazing. And it's terrible, right? Because like. Those two feelings are not at all the same, and yet it's kind of like the only word that we have to explain all of this and to describe all of this. This weird word, love. I feel like it's overstretched. Two, there's no direct understanding of how that we should love, right? Like, uh, pull up social media, pull up the news, pull up something like that, and basically what you will see is a group of people arguing around what is the most loving thing to do, right? Like, is it the most loving thing to do to give someone who's experiencing homelessness and is standing out on the street corner, is it loving to give them money, or is it loving to not? There's probably a lot of different opinions. Some people are like, they might use it for drugs. Some people are like, well, it's not your responsibility. And so all of these arguing around, like, well, what would actually be the most loving thing in this situation? Is it more loving to tell your spouse something that is hurtful, uh, like maybe like a thought that you had about one of your coworkers or something like that? Or is it more loving to spare them of that? Is it more loving to give people more freedom and choice? Is it more loving to uh, support people's needs and take care of them, even if that limits their freedom? We don't even know. And like what's crazy about this is sadly, really, no one's even framing the conversation around what is most loving. But I think in our hearts, like these are sort of at the heart of most of our debates. We don't even know what necessarily is the most loving thing to do. Have you ever seen a, a friend that's just in, in real like crisis in their life? 
And man, a bunch of things float through your head. You're like, do I need to step in and sort of help them out? Do I need to guide them in this? Do I just need to go and sit with them? Do I need to listen to them? Do I need to say this? Do I need to do this? Do I need to bring them this? What do I need to do? We don't even know how to love well when we really, really want to. Finally, I think about this a lot. I think we're bad at it even when we know what to do. Even when we know what the most loving thing is to do, we're still just not very good at it. No one, when they're getting married, thinks that they're going to get divorced, right? Like, nobody sort of goes into it with that mindset of, like, hey, this is heading towards something that's going to be disastrous. They're not like, hey, uh, you know, let's do the vows. They're like, I take you to be my bride until you put on a few pounds and nag me a little too much, and then I'm probably going to sleep with my secretary, right? Like, nobody, that's not a very romantic vow, I don't think. Nobody's like... All right, uh, I take you until your constant filthiness and laziness finally makes it my only option that I either murder you or move in with my sister, right? Like, these are not the wedding vows that we're used to laying out. And yet, like, that's how it sort of ends up going in a lot of times. In fact, the marriage stats are still sort of staggering. I think they are now below 50%. Congratulations, us, America. Uh, but still somewhere between 40 and 50% of marriages that start out on day one of, hey, let's spend the rest of our life together, end on whatever day. In fact, I think I read that the average is about eight and a half years. So end an average of an eight and a half years later. That's right. Congrats to all of you guys who've been married longer. You made it. You beat the average. Take, take your foot off the gas, you know, relax a little bit, right? You did it. No, but eight and a half years is the average year of adverse. So they start off with, I'll love you forever and ever and end with, hey, we're going to get in some really intense fights over who gets to keep the boat, right? I mean, there's crazy, crazy stuff. And that's when we have like the intention to love well. Like, I think I like I even know how to love Sarah well and still fail at being able to do it. On my better days, I think that like my highest goal in life might be to love Sarah and Evie as well as I possibly can to show them that love. And yet somehow selfishness, uh, my own sort of like self-indulgence just creeps in. And I find myself wanting to do something and not even having the capacity to do it. So I continued uh, looking into this idea of what love is. And I see that even in like not abstract ways, not like talking about divorce, not talking about what's happening in societies, like I see that looking into ourselves, I feel like we have to ask ourselves questions about what it means to love someone. When we try to be loving, is it actually always taken that way? Have you ever tried to do something really loving for someone and then it not be received like that? When we say that we love someone, do we always act that way? Do we act consistently in that way? And can you ever even consistently feel love towards someone? Can you ever just love someone or is it always mingled with all of these millions of other confusing and conflicting feelings, all of these other things that are floating around in your head? I looked into scripture to try and figure out what the answer to this question is. I actually stumbled across 1 John 4.16. It's actually one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. It answers the question, what is love? Check this out. It says this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So it answers the question, what is love? God is love. But I'm not sure that that really makes it any clearer, right? 
It's kind of like answering something, you know, like a specific question with another abstract, right? Like, what is love? God is love. I'm not really sure that that even makes it any clearer. And also, what is super confusing about all of this is that wrapped up in all of those weird feelings, like somehow the way that I feel about Sarah, somehow the way that I feel about a Snickers bar, all of these things wrapped up into one, all the complexities of what love even means and when we feel it and when we don't feel it and how much of a feeling and an action and all of those things all wrapped up in that is somehow this little verse, which is just there left to nag us that God is love, that somehow he is wrapped up in all of that business, all of that confusing, like what is this love? What is it? What does it mean? What does it feel like? What does it look like? All that stuff. God is wrapped up in the middle of that. So much so that John, someone who spent a, a lot of time with Jesus, hanging out with him, in fact, calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved throughout the Gospel of John that he writes. When he is writing this letter to the early church, he says to them, God is love. Not God is loving. Not God shows love. Not God has love. Nothing like that. No, but God is is love, which leads me to believe that somehow wrapped up in the feeling that I might feel towards someone else, in that very love that I experience with another human being, I am somehow interacting with God. All of this is kind of baffling. And I know, you know, we're kind of getting into like shower thoughts territory here. I know it can get really abstract, but I want to make sure that we all see this because this is sort of like a a building block for this entire sermon that somehow Somehow, in the mystery of God, somehow in a way that we won't even completely understand here on this earth, that God is love. And if it's true that we don't really, really know what love is, and if it's true that God really, really is love, then I think what we ought to do and what we're going to spend the rest of our time today doing is actually looking at this evidence of how God loves us. And trying to explore, man, what are we missing? What are we actually missing out on? What's sort of the gap between the way that God loves and the way that you and I tend to love? We're going to look at this crazy and beautiful story and ask, what are we missing about love? We tend uh, to think and even talk a lot about what is fair in love. Have you noticed that? Like that's kind of like the, the assumption, the sort of starting ground. And I want to just point out that absolutely nothing is fair in this passage. There's nothing fair about this entire weird love story that's happening. Let's check uh, verse 1. It says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecheth of barley. That's a, I don't even know how to pronounce that word. That's a tough one right there. I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> so what basically is happening here, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we started off this Hosea series, you saw that God tells Hosea to go and marry someone who is a prostitute, potentially a prostitute in the beginning, definitely cheating on God somehow in, in some way, shape or form. And then what happens a little while later is this woman, Gomer, that he is married, starts cheating on him again. Now, you may read some like other like resources and stuff that would say maybe this is like Hosea's second wife or something like that. I sort of went back and forth in trying to understand that. There's decent evidence on both sides. But I think uh, two sort of things point me towards this being actually Gomer that he had already married. It says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And so uh, the again there, I think it means like go back to the same woman that you have already rescued from uh, probably prostitution, something like that. And then it also 
it calls her an adulteress, which means that she uh, has to be married to be an adulteress, right? And so this probably means instead of Hosea going stealing someone else's wife, uh, that he's actually going back and uh, reclaiming his wife. So it says, go again to a woman who is loved by another man. It's interesting, too, here. It says, go again and love her. It doesn't say go and get her. It doesn't say go and like snatch her up. It says, hey, go and love this woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And then it compare, or, uh, God compares it to the way that he loves the children of Israel. He says, this is just the same as the way that I am going after the children of Israel, though they turn to other God and love cakes of raisins. Man, can you imagine? Uh, I just want us to all put on like our biblical archaeologist hat right now and imagine what a cake of raisin would have been to a society, a pre-Snickers society, if you will. Uh, right. So cakes of raisins would have been like this exceptionally decadent treat. And it's interesting, too. Uh, it would have probably been involved in some sort of ancient false god worship of some sort. You know, there'd be like cakes of raisins. But I think more so what he's tapping into here is he's like, quit chasing after the false gods and quit chasing after this decadent self-indulgence. Now, it's crazy. I said a post-Snickers society. Really, we are like a post-sugar society, and I promise this is not going to turn into a food documentary. But how bizarre is it now that we're just like sugar is on every corner? I mean, they're just handing it out for free. If you've ever been to a parade, they're just throwing pieces of like you know sugar at you that would have made an ancient Near Eastern Israelite lose their freaking minds, right? Like one bite of a piece of bubble gum would have just destroyed them forever, right? So here God is saying, hey, stay off the cakes of raisins it's weird man society we just changed so much that we're like yeah okay i can do that i think i'm going to give up cakes of raisins for lent you know like everybody's like oh look at you what a what a sacrifice man you did it anyway i don't want to get lost on the raisin cakes so hosea went back he bought her back and also to sort of talk about the fairness of this entire situation we must ask why he had to buy her at all in the first place because uh, if she was just uh, committing adultery, there would have to be no purchase, right? Like if she's just sort of running around on him, being with other men, then there would have to be no sort of reason why he would buy her back. If she was just sort of like a freelance, you know, like uh, let's just uh, let's just be really sort of you know modern and very like sex positive about this whole thing and be like she did this out of her own will, she's just out there doing it, assuming that that ever actually happens, that she's just prostituting because she's like, hey, this is a good way to make money. I'm fully fulfilled in myself. Uh, a, I don't really think that actually happened back then and b uh i have questions about whether or not it actually happens now and c uh you wouldn't have to pay for someone if that was the case right so if she was just like a freelancer who was going out there and prostituting herself for money there would be no reason why he would have to buy her out of that instead he could just show up and be like hey do you want to come home with me which sort of speaks to the inherent and unfairness in all of this that he had to go back and he had to find her and she was in some situation wherein he had to actually purchase her. Which means that she was either in some sort of form of like sexual slavery, that somehow she had like sold herself or stumbled herself into a place where some other human being considered them her, her, her their property. Or, more likely, and this is just truly like dagger to the heart to this entire story of the way that God loves us. More likely, she was probably a temple prostitute, somehow engaged in the worship of Baal that we've talked about a lot. That people would actually come, they would bring offerings, they would bring sacrifices, they would bring gifts, they would bring money just to be able to have sexual relations with her in order that they could actually grow closer to their false god and actually please the god of Baal so that hopefully they would have a better crop yield in the next year. 
Hosea, clearly a man of God, clearly a prophet of God called to speak on his behalf, now has to find his way into this temple of Baal and actually pay for the wife uh, that is already his own wife. He has to go in and buy her out of this. Just as an interesting side note, this was actually not even a lot of money. Like this amount that he's bringing, uh, that impossible word of barley, a homer, and 15 shekels of silver, uh, that would be a very, very, very cheap price for a human slave back in those times. So it's entirely possible, just to like lay the entire story out, that Hosea finds this woman who's living in prostitution. He rescues her out of that, gives her nothing but love, tries to love her as much as he possibly can. She returns back to that and becomes this temple prostitute. He has to march in there. She had probably at this point, because of just sort of the price that has led some scholars to believe that potentially she is sort of like at the end of her road. She is like not even worth that much as a human being anymore. And Hosea marches in there pays the price, and buys back his own wife. Now, I want you to recognize that none of this is fair. None of this is fair. Hosea would have had every single right in the world under the uh, law that he was uh, submitting himself to, under God's law that the Israelites were living under. He would have had every right in the world to abandon her completely. He could have even had her stoned. He could have left her. He could have never seen her again. And yet still, he walks back into this situation and buys his own wife out of this. I feel like if this, ha- if this situation happened to us, if someone like cheated on us, like we feel completely justified to kind of like divorce and leave them immediately, right? Like it's almost like there's like no gray area. In fact, the Bible has given us this freedom to be able to divorce someone. So we're like, oh, well, if they cheated on us, I'm definitely going to do that, right? If it happens in any sort of relationship, we instantly are like trashing them on Facebook, divorcing them, fighting over all of our material possessions. Like that is the only uh, result of a situation like this. And instead, Hosea is walking back into something exceedingly difficult. This is not how God's love works. It does not end in divorce. It does not end in saying, I can get rid of this person, so I'm going to get rid of this person. And it is ultimately really not fair. It's not fair for Hosea, and it's not fair for God. In our modern society, I think some really good things have come out of, you guys are going to think like I'm anti-woke today, but anyway, uh, some really good things have come out of like emotional awareness and even like uh, the movement of feminism in modern society. Like when someone says like, oh my gosh, he should not treat you that way. You should not be punished. You should not be physically assaulted to be in this relationship. He cannot talk to you that way. You are worth more than that. You should get out of this relationship as fast as you can. It's amazing that we live in a time where that's like acceptable and is actually possible. And in, you know, pre generations they would have said I'm sorry you are just stuck with this guy and he's going to treat you like that forever but can I tell you that I think in some ways we might have like swung a little bit too far like how many of our relationships are built on like what we think we deserve 
You know, it's one thing to be like, hey, he's like uh, physically, emotionally, sexually abusing you. You need to get out of this relationship. It's another thing, though, that we've like sort of adopted that entire language around just normal sort of relationship talk. We're like, oh, my gosh, he does not need to talk to your cat that way. You need to get out of this relationship. Right. You don't you deserve better than that. You deserve better than some guy who's going to, you know, leave his room too messy. Oh, my gosh. You cannot like stand up for this. Wait a second. She's not going to let you go out with your friends and have fun on the weekends you deserve man think about yourself man love yourself you've got to take care of yourself get out of this relationship and what we're actually heading towards i know these examples are a little bit stupid but i think that it's actually in a lot of ways infected the way that we think about love i think what we're heading towards in our exceedingly self-indulgent and self-affirming society is that we are heading towards a place where it is going to be difficult to have long-lasting and meaningful loving relationships, period. Because we are consistently telling ourselves and telling each other, man, everything is about what is fair to you. Everything is about what is just to you. Everything is about what you deserve. And that is not the story of this love song. I mean, of this, this, is, this is not the story of this love story. Pretty soon, we're going to be all sitting around and alone in a room telling each other about what we deserve and completely missing out on what love actually is. I bring all of this up because I think love has turned a little bit away from like what we can give and the way that we can actually love another human being to sort of fighting for what we deserve and for what we believe is right and for what we believe that we can actually earn. Deserve is actually a statement of justice, right? Deserve comes from this idea that I have something that is right. There is something that is wrong. I need to get what is owed me. I need to get what is my right. I need to get what I have earned. But I'm not sure that that's at all what love is actually about. In fact, I would say that God's love is actually more than just. Justice would have said that Hosea could march into this situation, he could divorce his wife, he could have her killed, and he could move on with his life. Justice would have said that God could have abandoned Israel that was constantly running away from him, that was chasing after these false gods. Justice would have said he could have moved on, found somebody else, and just completely given up on them. Or, by justice, he could have wiped out the entire human race that he created that now is working in direct opposition from him. But God's love is not just, it is more than just. I think there's like a common misconception that God is somehow equally all of the attributes that we put to him. And God is definitely a God of justice. He is a God who fights for what is right. He is a God who stands up for victims. He is a God who is working actively to make the world right again. And so it is fair and completely true to say that God is just. But I think we sort of misunderstand God when we start balancing his love and justice and we say, like, he's equally both of those things all of the time. God is and will always act in favor of justice. But to try and compare that to how loving he is almost seems absurd. In fact, there's this book called uh, Paralandra. It's by C.S. Lewis. It's part of his space trilogy. And he imagines a world where Adam and Eve are living, but they have not yet fallen. They're, there's no sin that has yet entered into this world. And so he sends this guy from uh, our world over to their world and sort of talks to them, tries to help them, sort of point them in the right direction. 
And he starts talking about justice to this Adam and this Eve, right? And he's telling them like, uh, oh, well, you know, we should uh, be shooting for justice. We need to get justice. And basically they have no conception of the word. That before the fall, before sin even exists, they're like, we don't even know what you're talking about. We don't know what justice actually is. And that's because the default way that God was, was not just uh, creating justice. It was something more, something greater than justice. In fact, the way that God was relating to Adam and Eve in this perfect world that he's created was not something that you would describe as just, right? He gave them everything. He showed up and just gave good gifts to his people. There was no sort of like right and wrong in it. And in fact, if anything, he was giving more than he was actually getting in return. It was a completely unjust situation. And so as the, the main character is talking to Adam about justice, this is how the main character or this is how Adam sort of responds. He says, you are right, he said. I know now that they say in your world about justice or what they say in your world about justice. And perhaps they say, well, for in that world, things always fall below justice. But God always goes above it. The beautiful point here is that love is not based on fairness at all. And in fact, the original way that God created this entire world can be so much more defined by just a picture of the way that this creating God loves his creation so much than it ever could be described by any terms of justice. Justice doesn't even make sense in this equation. And if you look at the story of Hosea, the exact same thing is true. That much more than being a God who's going to make sure that Hosea's wife gets punished for what she did, he is a God that is consistently showing the way that he loves us even when we don't deserve it. I think this should tell us something about what real love actually is. Love is not fair. Love is not about what you deserve. Love is not about what is just and what is unjust. It's not fair that God loves you. It's like a painful love, like loving a serial adulterer, loving someone who is always running around on you, loving someone who can never love you the same way that you love them, loving them, knowing that you'll never get that exact same feeling in return. That is the way that God loves us. And here's the point for some of like our human attempts at love. Maybe the reason that we struggle in our relationships is because we are too busy fighting for what we believe that we deserve, not busy fighting to love that other person, to give them what they deserve and maybe even more than that. I've seen this in my own relationships. Man, when I just get hung up on focusing on like, man, this is not right. They shouldn't be treating me like this. I have rights. I have all of these things. Man, it is impossible to really love someone when you are harboring that sort of injustice against them. Now, I know I'm walking a tightrope here. There are things that people should do that do to you that they should not do and that you need to be able to stand up for. I'm not saying never give up all of your or I'm not saying to give up all of your rights. What I am saying is that we really when we really sort of tap into this beautiful love of God, this love that is so much greater than the love that we typically extend to one another, all of a sudden our rights are taking backseat to the way in which we can love this other person. That's when we truly begin to experience love the way that God experiences it. That's when we truly begin to taste this. And so that is exactly why he walks Hosea through this terrible and completely unjust and unfair situation. At the end of the day, love beats out justice every single time. And it's ultimately what God gives us in Jesus. Not the story of justice, though justice was ultimately served, but the story ultimately of love. I'll get back to that later. 
Next, God, God's love may feel like punishment. God's love may feel like punishment. In verse 3 it says, And I, had, I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. So uh, Hosea takes Gomer home. And he says, hey, here's the sort of like limits that I'm putting around this thing. You're not going to do this anymore. You're not going to belong to another man. And then he says, so will I also be to you. And it's actually a way of saying that he wasn't going to sleep with her either. So he's saying like, hey, you're not going to be with any other man. You're also not going to be with me. Uh, we don't know how long this period was. It could have been forever. It could have been for a few weeks. It could have been like whatever. He was just setting this sort of standard for at least the next phase of their relationship. It's so interesting, actually, in Redeeming Love, and I promise I'm not going to get all weird about Michael Hosea again. I'm sorry about that, but you really should read the book if you want to understand. Uh, it's really interesting in this book. This kind of happens, and they sort of play this out. Uh, he brings home this prostitute that he has rescued, and then uh, what's happening is she wants to sleep with him because she's sort of, you know, that's the way that she has related to men in the past. That's what she wants to do. And he says no repeatedly, repeatedly. And what ends up happening, we see this through the book, is it takes away sort of her power and her normal way of like uh, thinking about how she can control her world. He says, no, 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 I'm going to love you regardless of whether or not that happens between us. And so I'm going to say, hey, let's take that off the table. And all of a sudden, she has no sort of concept of how she is supposed to relate to a man anymore, much less one that supposedly loves her, even though she doesn't trust it at the moment. This was the only move that she had, and he was not interested in it. This is exactly what's happening in this story today. Here his wife has been out uh, doing who knows what. He brings her home and he says, hey, we're not going, you're not going to play the same game with me. That is not the exact same thing. You know what's really interesting? I found like sort of a modern parallel to this. Uh, there's a guy named Terry Crews, and he's a delightful, uh, beautiful human being, right? If you know who he is, then you know what I'm talking about. I think he hosts like one of those, like maybe America's Got Talent. It's true skill, though, is in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, his name's Terry Crews, and uh, he's an actor. I think he was formerly a football player and bodybuilder and stuff like that. Uh, he actually, and he's, he's been extremely public about all of this stuff, sort of, um, he, he talks about at one point having a sex addiction and uh, all of the sort of implications of that. It almost cost him his marriage and his family. His wife was like packed up, ready to leave him. And what's interesting is they uh, eventually went through some counseling and uh, reconciled afterwards. And then they did this weird thing. And like I said, this is, you know, way oversharing. And again, I'm sorry for the PG-13 nature of this sermon. Uh, this was way oversharing from him all over his Instagram and everything like that. He and his wife actually did like a sex fast for like six months where they said, like, okay, we're going to, like, actually reframe and reset the way that we think about this, even in our healthy and beautiful relationship, even in our marriage. We are going to sort of uh, start at zero and try and reset the clock on all of this. Now, I'm not recommending this for anyone. Uh, I, you know, I'm not that involved in your life to know the details of this, nor am I some sort of, like, licensed counselor that could throw this out there. But for them, it worked out. And can you imagine how sort of like strange that would have been? Like here he was into some sort of like unhealthy sexual practices. And in order to get back into a healthy place, he says, hey, we're not going to have any of this at all. 
And that's what he and his wife sort of agreed to and then moved on. Now, some of you guys who are single are like, man, I've been on a sex fast for my entire life. I don't know why we're even talking about this right now. But just to imagine it for a moment, like this would have been really, really, really difficult for them. And it couldn't have felt like the right thing to do in that moment. You know, there had to be so many moments where you're like, no, I just need to like return and be with my wife. That is actually going to sort of reset. That's what's going to be good. But you know what was actually happening over those six months? In addition to some like deep emotional work, I'm sure that was happening. In addition to working with a counselor and sort of reframing the way that they actually think about sex, what was actually happening in their brains was that that sort of like chemical, you know, endorphin release, whatever it was that was happening in that time was actually sort of like resetting down to zero. That when you truly like get addicted to something, all of a sudden your brain starts kicking in and saying, hey, I need more of this. It's time for this. It's time for this. And sort of begin setting that clock and you begin getting hungry for it. It's like having a caffeine headache in the middle of the afternoon and needing a cup of coffee. Like, so what was happening is over the course of that time, they were actually reframing, actually rebuilding the pathways in their brain to the way that they think about this. And they came out of it. Seemingly to have a happy and beautiful marriage. You can check out his Instagram if you don't believe me. Terry loves three things at the very least. He loves colorful and beautiful suits. He loves yogurt and he loves his wife. And it's amazing. It truly is like one of the most, I think, of Hollywood marriages that are out there. Seemingly one of the most beautiful and authentic and honest ones. And all because they had to go through this terrible and hard time. Here, God's love, God's love for Gomer as present in the marriage of Hosea and Gomer looked like shutting down the very thing that she had been chasing after for a long time. It had to feel like a punishment. It had to feel like he was chastising her. For Israel, it says that God's love looked like many days without a king or a prince or false or real gods. It was the detox that Israel needed and was the only way that they were going to be able to come back to him. And guys, this detox was not like a simple thing, like, oh, you don't have a king right now. Oh, how sad is that? No, it is. It means getting conquered by the Assyrian army. It means getting taken over and taken to Babylon. It means all of the terrible things that happened to Israel, these people of God, these people that were God's children, these people that God was supposed to take care of them. He allows them to be picked up and uprooted from this promised land that he had given them, taken off as slaves to a foreign country, forced to worship and chase after other gods, forced to uh, either give up their lives for chasing after God or uh, be ostracized from society. These are all the consequences of what they had done and God allows it to happen for them. And all of this was out of his ultimate love and hope for who they are and who they could be. I think it's evidence, and this is, this is, I think, shocking to us today, is that sometimes love is meant to hurt a little bit. Sometimes true love is going to feel like punishment. Sometimes real and beautiful love is going to cost us something. I wonder how our lives would look very different if we actually took the things that were the hardest to us, the things that felt like death, the things that were the most challenging, that felt like a punishment. If we took them and we asked, like, what if God truly loved me? 
What if I, the, the sort of central question that we've been asking this entire time, what if you were truly loved? What if you were truly and completely known? What if you were truly and completely once and for all forgiven? What if all of that was true and you were still going through something that was terrible and feels like you're not going to be able to make it through? What if all of that was true and you were allowed to go through all of this because God loved you? Like, what if you were in something that felt like it was the worst thing that ever happened to you, but it was actually evidence of God's love? You see, for Israel, this is exactly what had to happen to them so that they might be at all ready and prepared for Jesus. For Hosea and his wife, this is what was needed so that they might be able to reset their marital relationship. This is what it required for them to get back in right standing. This is the hopeful path to a better future. And yet all too often we look at things that happen that are bad to us that we don't like. And we say, God has abandoned me. He doesn't love me. He is not fighting for me. But man, I think if we see anything from this passage and truly the entirety of scripture is that sometimes, sometimes God's love is going to feel like punishment, but it ultimately leads to our good. It ultimately leads to our good because God's love hopes much. God's love hopes hopes much. It's crazy to me that after all of this, the passage ends this way in verse 5. It says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. It's kind of absurd if you've been tracking through this whole uh, book of Hosea so far, and we're about to get into even more sort of nitty-gritty. This is sort of like the capstone on the entire Hosea and Gomer story, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about Israel through the next coming weeks. That after all the spiritual adultery, after conquering of the Assyrians and Babylonians, after his people have committed every sin under the sun, after all that, he says that they will come back to him. They shall return and seek the Lord their God. And it says, and David their king. And, and I think what he's actually implying here is a king like David, maybe in his lineage, like <clears throat> Jesus, right? Uh, and they shall come in fear to the Lord, and they shall come to his goodness. I don't understand. That's like a tall order, right? That these people who have been running hard away from God, these people that God called an adulterous people, these people who have been chasing after uh, these other gods, these people who had been killing each other, though they were supposed to be God's family, these people who have been sleeping with temple prostitutes to try and please a false and fake God, these people who have been setting their children on fire to just try and please these gods that they had made up for themselves, these people who consistently over and over over break God's good and perfect covenant these people God says one day they'll come back to me one day they'll come back and I will treat them with kindness they will know my goodness even into the latter days kind of feels like if you're like truly invested in this moment in time we're looking at Hosea we're looking at Israel and we're like how in the world could this story ever turn out good how in the world can this ever actually be an evidence that God loves his people? And yet somehow there's this message of hope at the end. Because that's what God's love is like. It hopes much. It hopes so much, even against the odds, even against the reality that is staring it down. It hopes much.
God's love is optimistic. You might even say it is crazy. 1 Corinthians, it says this in verse 13, verse 7. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So God, hoping all things, decides that the only way to get his people back here is for Hosea to forgive everything, to show his people that is what he is going to do, to take the burden on himself, to buy back his own cheating wife, all as a part of this crazy rescue plan for all of humanity. You know, when God was sitting down, you know, I picture him like almost like presenting to a boardroom. I don't know who would be in the boardroom, but he's like presenting and they're like, all right, so uh, we've got to have a plan. We've got to save all the people again, right? Like they're running away from you, God. Something is wrong. They are chasing after all these other things. We've got to find a way to get them back. Somebody's like, well, what if we just did like some sky riding, right? And we like showed them like, hey, uh, quit being an adulteress. Like, wouldn't that be some like, you know, usually sky riding is more positive than that, right? But it could be something like that, like from God, hey, quit chasing after false gods from God, hey, look back to me, that kind of stuff. And God's like, no, no, that's not what we're going to do. And they're like, uh, what if we had like a really, really good king? Like, what if we had like a David 2.0, but he was better than David? And everybody was like, wow, you're so powerful. You killed all these giants. You're so impressive. Like, we love you so much. We're going to chase after and follow after you. And God's like, no, 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 that's not what we're going to do. And then they're like, what if you just gave them everything that you wanted? You know, like, what if you just gave them everything that they have been hungering and thirsting for? And he's like, well, I tried that. You know, we gave them the promised land. I said, hey, just be my people and then I'll keep taking care of you. And they were like, no, 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 that's not going to work. Right. And then God sits down and he says, here's what I'm going to try. Something more absurd than all of that. And he decided in his crazy love, what if I just came in and forgave them for everything? Like, what if the best way to deal with all their waywardness, all their adultery, all the ways that they are running around with other gods, what if the best way to actually handle that situation is just to step in and say, hey, I forgive you? They'd be like, well, hold on, God, how is justice still going to be served? And he's like, well, I'm actually going to take all of their sin on myself. See, all of those ways that they've been running around on me, all those ways that they've been cheating on me, I'm actually going to take that on. I can, I can bear that burden. I can actually pay the price to buy them back. I can actually send my son down. He can actually take that on himself. I'm actually going to take that. God says, what if I went running into the temple of the false gods where they have been whoring themselves out? And what if I went in there and I bought them back and I loved them? What if I went into the very heart, to the very central place where their sin was just placed on display as if it were good and healthy for them? What if I actually showed them that it was I that truly, truly loved them? And what if I showed up not chastising them, not trying to find some sort of payment plan where they can pay me back and earn their way back into my favor. What if I just showed up and I forgave them for everything? What if I paid all of their debts? What if I took on all of their punishment onto myself? What if I actually uh, threw justice out the window for a minute and actually loved them more than they could ever possibly deserve or understand? What if I actually did all of that for them? God did it here for Hosea. He did it for the people of Israel. And he has done it for all of us through his son, Jesus. That in the central moment of all of human history, 
All the ways that we have run away from God, all the ways that we have cheated on him, all the ways that we have hid from him, all the ways that we've tried to figure out our own lives, he actually steps in and he forgives us for all of it. He loves us. He takes the punishment on himself and gives us instead a life that we do not deserve, an eternal life with him that we don't deserve. I think actually uh, the best love songs in the world are actually a taste of God's love for us. If God is love and somehow this feeling that we feel between each other is somehow an experience of a gift that God has given to us, then I think the best love songs actually end up stumbling upon something more than themselves. That's why they can sort of uh, get so much emotional pathos out of us, right? Like to be able to just sort of uh, embrace and understand these love songs on a deeper level than is just sort of, you know, logical and getting it. I've actually been listening to a lot of love songs uh, over the past week, trying to sort of like understand this. And there's this weird connection, I think, in this one. Uh, It's actually from Bob Dylan, then uh, covered by a million people, Garth Brooks, Billy Joel, Adele, all across the board, right? But I think there's like this weird thing, and I I don't know, this is going to be weird, maybe a little cheesy, but I want to end with just sort of this simple idea that I think what, uh, what Mr. Dylan uh, was actually sort of hitting on was probably not something Maybe it's something that we feel between human beings, but I think it's only a glimmer and a glimpse giving us an insight into who God is and the way that he feels about us. He says, I know you haven't made your mind up yet, but I would never do you wrong. I've known it from the moment that we met. There's no doubt in my mind where you belong. I'd go hungry. I'd go black and blue. I'd go crawling down the avenue. No, there's nothing that I wouldn't do to make you feel my love. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.